0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 20. This is the word of God. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, in evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and all speak in tongues, and uninformed men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face, and worship God, declaring that surely God is among you. What is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a translation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must translate. But if there is no translator... He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear the the truth of your word today, Lord, and give us the courage once again to align our lives uh, in accordance with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Almost got you guys trained. So... So in this study so far, we've gone back to the Tower of Babel. We've gone back to the Abrahamic Covenant. And after that, we looked at the Mosaic Covenant. And all of that to show the historical context of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Babel was, in fact, God's judgment to confuse and divide the nations and, in fact, estrange the nations from God. You need to understand the simple truth that when two people cannot understand one another, when there's confusion, that's an, a lasting um, effect or, or remnant of God's judgment at one time in the past. So the nations, as I said, were estranged to Yahweh. And then he set aside the nation of Israel specifically through Abraham. He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham's descendants. They were his people, a nation for His own possession. And here's the promise, that one day, the way for the nations to reconcile with God would come through the nation of Israel, as they were given the oracles of God, the Law and the Prophets, and equally as important, obviously, Jesus was of Jewish descent. He came into the world through Israel. So God had been very gracious to them over and over again. Furthermore, once the Holy Spirit was poured out, this gift manifested in a way that unified and it brought understanding uh, which is the opposite of what happened at Babel and the judgment of the nations. Is everybody following? All right. So the day of Pentecost was God's act of ending His judgment on the nations in the confusion. The gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and eventually the remotest parts of the world. However, this, this the, the speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost was a double-edged sword, and I want to explain to you why. The scoffers in the crowd on that day were unbelieving Jews, and it served as a prophetic judgment by God. The fact that these scoffers, these mockers, heard uh, these men speak in another tongue, another language, this was an act of judgment against the unbelieving. I want to explain to you why. Around 930 B.C., Israel was fractured and divided into two separate kingdoms. There was the kingdom of the north, which was Israel, and the southern kingdom was Judah. And in 722 B.C., because of their unbelief and unfaithfulness to God, the northern kingdom of Israel were taken captive by the Assyrians. So they were attacked, they were defeated, and they were taken off into captivity. They were carried away by people who spoke another language. They could not understand them. So this was once again a form of God's judgment on the people for their unfaithfulness. And here in our text, Paul is making this point to the Corinthian believers by pointing to this in this time of Israel's past when God uh, used confusing languages as judgment on His people. In Isaiah chapter 28... 15 years after the northern kingdom had been taken by Assyria, the prophet was now warning the nation of Judah of the same judgment that had happened to Israel. And the picture here is of Isaiah being overly clear, okay? How many of you guys have ever had a teacher? I remember when I was in about eighth grade, we had a teacher named Mrs. Ellis, and she spoke to everyone, all of us, in eighth grade, like we were kindergartners right? Have you ever had somebody talk to you, a grown adult, like you were a kindergarten, kindergartner? It's you understand what's happening here. And this is what's going on here. It's almost to the point of being antagonistic as Isaiah is, is proclaiming the truth of God's word as if these folks he's prophesying to are toddlers. Okay. Look in Isaiah 28, nine through 11. It says, whom would he instruct in knowledge and whom would he provide understanding about the report those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, for he says, order on order on order, line on line on line, a little here and a little there. So he's spoon feeding them. That's that's the picture we're getting here, that he's treating them like babies, like toddlers. Verse 11, Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, Here is rest. Give rest to the weary, and here is repose, which means rebellion. They would not listen. So you see, it's rejection. Okay. So um, here's what he's saying. I've been crystal clear. You've rebelled against me. You will not listen. So the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom will happen to Judah. They they will be carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, again, a people with a language that they do not understand. So for further reference, 800 years before Isaiah, God warns Israel in Deuteronomy 28, 49, and here's what He says, Yahweh will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. And then around 100 years after Isaiah, in Jeremiah 5, verse 15, we see the same exact type of judgment. He says, Behold, I'm bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. It's an enduring nation. It's an ancient nation, a nation whose tongue you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. You see, Pentecost served a dual purpose that day. Those who believed understood the languages. Those who did not believe mocked them, and they rejected the gospel, and again, Pentecost was a partial fulfillment of prophecy, a blessing for the new church, the new, um, the new blessing that God would now work in this new way. But in another way, it was prophetic of the judgment of unbelieving Israel that would happen just uh, several years later in 70 AD. And Paul was writing this letter about 15 years before Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem, he killed. Uh, they killed one million Jews and scattered them across the globe. So now we have the context, and we can understand why Paul writes what he writes and, and how he's writing it uh, to the Corinthian believers. Verse 20, if you'll look with me there in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So he's referencing this This idea of line by line by line. He's referencing the idea of being immature. If you're going to be immature or ignorant in anything, he says, let it be evil. Let it be your old pagan ways. Let those things go. If you're going to act like babies, act like babies about worldly things, okay? Be ignorant about worldly things and the things will drag you down, the sinful nature. Be mature believers instead. Take time to understand how God has dealt with his people in the past and let that inform your behavior now in the house of God. Verse 21. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. The lack of understanding of languages again is a sign of judgment for the unbelieving, for those who have rejected God. Look at verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. The ones who didn't understand, who had rejected God, they were in judgment. The ones who were right with God and had ears to hear, they actually heard the languages being spoken in their own tongue. So he's saying to them, prophecy edifies The whole body because it can be understand it could be understood it unifies but when you abuse it it has the opposite effect verse 23 therefore if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and uninformed men or unbelievers enter will they not say that you are out of your mind if the Holy Spirit were indeed doing this and this is really the bottom line here if the things going on here are an act of the Holy Spirit then everyone would understand, so that everyone could be edified. But for the foreigner who's ignorant of how God used the gift in the past, he has no context. And if he has no context, and in addition, he hears mumbo jumbo or you know like gibber uh, jabber, the the whole thing. When Jesus said "bata bata bata," or when it says "barbarian," it's talking about that bar bar bar. All they're hearing. Are sounds coming from your mouth It's devoid of all meaning and purpose. So now we get to verse 24, and I love this verse. This passage is incredible. But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that surely God is among you. Is this not what we want, church? Is this not what we want for someone to come in our midst and and know that what's being proclaimed is the truth of God? The gospel is to be preached. We want whatever happens in the church to be genuine, to be real, to be authentic, to be the truth. If an unbeliever comes, he won't think we're crazy. Rather, he understands every word. And the truth sheds light on his wicked heart. He's convicted by all, it says. Being a part of the local congregation where the truth is spoken and understood holds the wayward heart to account. Holds their feet to the fire. And when he sees his own spiritual poverty, when the truth is proclaimed, when he sees the ugliness of his own wickedness in the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, that man will cry out to God. What shall I do to save my soul? The very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, when the truth is is revealed to him, and and he cries out, he he wails, What must I do to save my soul? He understands his spiritual poverty. How may I escape this wrath that I deserve? The Spirit of God opened his eyes to the beauty of God's grace and mercy with new eyes. He sees the truth of the gospel. It will be truly understood for the first time. And and in that godly sorrow, it leads to repentance. It leads to brokenness. And He will be made a new creation. That's the gospel. That's how it works. He'll fall on His face and He'll worship God. And in the power of the Spirit, it's undeniable. This is God at work in the human heart. Surely He will cry out, God is among you. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel. We can't fake our way to genuine salvations. We do not need to help God out or fabricate miracles or pretend that God is moving in the Spirit when God is not moving in the Spirit in all of these various ways that people try to say He is. When the Spirit actually moves, there's fruit. It bears fruit because it's God doing it. It's not the work of men. Amen? To counterfeit the Holy Spirit of God is to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, and it is hatred toward your lost brother. When you're fabricating and faking miracles and you are, are adhering to a false gospel, it is hatred toward your lost brother. Do you understand me? It's hatred. You're you're sending them in the wrong direction from actual genuine salvation. Verse 26. What is the outcome then, brothers? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has a a translation. Let all things be done for edification. You guys answer me. How many things? All things. How many is all? It's pretty simple, right? Right? Let all things be done for edification of whom? Everyone. To edify everyone. If, if it's one person speaking in a tongue and, and all are not edified, then you are not in the Spirit of God, period. That's the end of the story. From this passage, how often can someone be edified by a tongue that is not understood? Never. It's impossible. You cannot be edified if somebody else is speaking in an unknown tongue, that cannot be understood. Paul is very, very clear about this. So the rule in the assembly is lined out here, and this is the process. We've talked about the priority of it. Now we're, we're talking about the process. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn, and one must translate. And just so I'm clear here this morning, everyone look at that verse 27 again. I'm going to break it down again so you understand I'm going to speak to you like a kindergarten teacher this morning, okay? And, uh, and here's, here, once again, here's what it says. If anyone, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, not at the same time, what does it say? Each in their own turn, and one must translate. Pretty clear rules, right? Pretty simple rules. I think we've got it. So now here's my question. In light of everything that we've studied so far, going all the way back in the past in the historical context, I want to revisit the questions I've been asking over the weeks. Number one, what are tongues? Tongues are simply languages. What was the purpose of tongues? To communicate for understanding, cooperation, and unity. What are pagan tongues? Pagan tongues were ecstatic Repetitious, unintelligible, pagan practice of prayer. That's what it was. And it was very common in their day, which is why Jesus says, don't pray that way, okay? Uh, Fourth question, what was the gift, the spiritual gift of tongues? It was a supernatural sign of speaking a language or interpreting a language that they did not know. What was the purpose of the gift of tongues? In the assembly, it was validation from God for understanding, edification for those who believe, and judgment for those who rejected it, rejected the truth. Was the practice of tongues in Corinth the same as at Pentecost? In some cases, when it was done properly and according to the Spirit, absolutely. There were some cases in the Corinthian church in which it was genuine. In many cases, when it was abused, it was not of the Spirit. Did the practice of tongues in Corinth serve the same purpose? As at Pentecost, again, when done properly, yes, it it did. When it was abused, absolutely not. And now having all of this in context, our next question is, is the modern practice of tongues the same as at Pentecost? Do we see what's going on in the church today? Does it align with what we've just studied in Scripture? And in order to do this today, we are going to practice as a church some biblical discernment okay and what that means is we're going to see some examples all right I'm going to go all Justin Peters on you guys today but ain't nobody like Justin Peters except Justin Peters okay so I'm not trying to be him I'm going to use his uh, the way he teaches to make some points and we're going to practice some biblical discernment and we're going to compare what's going on in the clips to what scripture actually says so here we go
1: Man, it's time to pray, church. I believe our nation is in the balances. Jesus Christ, robo kore Bidara-raba Kupanamayande! Bokarara-raba Sakai! I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, healing, 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 I pray, I pray, I pray, deliverance, 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 yes, Lord, 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 yes, Lord radanda Rabasha Carabamanda de Yasa, Urataratatala Moho Yes, Lord, have your way, have your way, have your way, have your way. Uh,
0: uh, uh, uh.
1: Shit it, I'm waiting for your husband. Yes, husband, come on, husband. shit da da da, da da da. Anybody could do this. Even if you pray in tongue. That's my bulldog, he's getting excited. Yeah. So here we go. Abba. Abba sala. Terese. Kele masa. Endeseke. Tese kele masata. Emberete. se ele mesek. Embeshete kele masa. Now, I'm feeling that. I'm not worried about you. I'm feeling that because
0: that's between me and God.
1: If you've never prayed in tongues, if you follow my instructions, the anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, up. Raise your hands to a holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it. Blowing. I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first words coming out of your spirit do it faster i said faster i said faster you can do it faster than that if I had a gun in your ribs, you'd do it faster no, oh, no, 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 God is up. Sha'am de Pastor. Death ears are being opened yes. right now. Yes. In we Jesus' agree. name. Backs are being healed. Rich in the name Carpals of Jesus. tunnel, you're healed. In, the Fingers of Jesus. in Jesus' name. Right now. In the name I love of Jesus. Hallelujah. It. This is normal. <laughs> Let the whole world be normal.
0: Let the whole world be normal, he says. That that's normal. And, th- and I want you to understand the spirit in which I'm, I'm showing you these clips. I'm not doing this in any way to make fun or be mean-spirited. I want you to know that. What I'm, what I'm trying to show you is that this is mainstream now. This is mainstream, and what they're doing is they're attributing this to the Holy Spirit. They're saying God is doing this. And so that's why I'm trying to illustrate to you guys but if we use biblical discernment, we see that this doesn't align with what Scripture tells us. Co- uh, considering that there's not one passage of Scripture uh, instructing believers a, about a private prayer language, not one, um, you could you could even make the case that snake handling would have more biblical backing than, than speaking with a private prayer language because the Bible never talks about or instructs on a private Prayer language. All spiritual gifts were for the assembly. Spiritual gifts were not given for private edification. They were given to the church for the building up of the church. And I think we've seen in these clips that this modern practice of tongues in no way aligns with what Scripture describes as the purpose of speaking in tongues. It flies in the face of what Jesus said when He said not to pray in, in vain repetition In fact, believe it or not, this kind of tongues talking is not just confined to Christian circles, okay? This type of ecstatic utterance was present in the pagan religions of the past, as we've already discussed, but also present in many false religions all over the world. It's been discovered to be practiced in China, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia, Siberia, Arabia, Burma, the Arctic regions and many other places around the world in various different false religions. One quote I found says, "Glossolalia is practiced among the shamans or shamans in Ethiopia in the Tsar cult and is manifested through various spirit, spirits in Haitian Voodoo." Same kind of thing. It's also found to be practiced in African tribal religions. In addition, uh, this is interesting because this is becoming more and more widespread in uh, society today, the use of psychosomatic drugs, uh, but they uh, trip on psychosomatic drugs, and what happens often when they take a lot is that they meet these spirit guides, these, these entities, and they too speak in tongues while on this uh, drug-induced trip, okay? And so here's what One expert said about that. You take psilocybin, you can fall spontaneously into states of glossolalia. Sometimes on DMT, it's almost impossible to control. It just spontaneously comes out. It's language-like activity in the absence of meaning. So we have plenty of history of cults, drug addicts, false religions practicing uh, tongues. And so here's a question, a legitimate question. Would, would God utilize something that is being used far-reaching in all the other false religions and something that could be so easily faked? Is this something that God would employ within the body of Christ or would the way it actually happens in the body of Christ be uh, certain? Would we know for sure that this was in fact God? And of course we know using Scripture that yes, the, the way that we prove this is that there is an interpreter Who can let everyone know? Historically, we have no record. Now, this is important. Historically, we have no record of this kind of ecstatic tongues within the history of the body of Christ after Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So you don't see it mentioned anywhere else in the Bible after that. Okay, Even though people like to use the the Scriptures that say pray in the Spirit and they say that's tongues, it's, it's no more tongues than saying walking in the Spirit or singing in the Spirit or you know any of those things are, are, are tongues either. It just means walking according to the Spirit, singing according to the Spirit, praying according to the Spirit in line with God's Spirit. Historically, we have, as I said, no record. This was not a part of everyday Christianity across the ages. So if it isn't orthodox Christian belief, meaning it wasn't held by the historic church as acceptable, it begs the question, when did the modern practice of tongues originate in the church? When did it originate in our modern day church? Why do we see these ecstatic tongues being used by such a large number of people today? And frankly, this came as a shock to me and, uh, when I first learned about it, and maybe it will you too, but the modern day practice began fairly recently in history, and then it just exploded and caught fire. And the first wave, they call it, of glossolalia started only 121 years ago in 1901. That's This is the first time. The concept was introduced by a man named Charles Parham of Bethel College in Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, and he's considered the father of Pentecostalism. He's affectionately referred to as one of God's generals, okay? And the thing is, Parham was also involved in several scandals. Uh, On one occasion, he was arrested for theft. And then I got this clip out of a newspaper on another occasion. In 1907 in San Antonio, in the heat of July, Pentecostal revival, Charles Parham was arrested. Uh, Again, it says, the father of Pentecostalism, the midwife of Glossolalia, was arrested on charges of, quote, the commission of an unnatural offense along with a 22-year-old defendant, J.J. J. Jordan. I'm not real sure what that means. Nobody really knows what it means, but a quick ra- uh, reference to Texas law in 1907 is pretty clear. I think you could all put two and two together. But um, what was the genesis of modern day speaking in tongues? And I want to read you uh, a bit from an article entitled, Tongues of Fire in Kansas. So I, I understand this is a bit like a classroom setting today, but I'm trying to give you a base of knowledge so that you understand where all of this came from and why it's part of the church today. On January 1st, 1901, Charles Parham and his 40 students held a 10.30 p.m. prayer service at Stone's Folly. About 75 people attended from outside Bethel College, bringing the total of 115 people to the watch night service. Around 11 p.m., Agnes Osman asked Parham to lay hands upon her so that she might receive the Holy Ghost. He refused at first, having not yet himself received the Holy Ghost, but eventually laid his hands on her and began reciting from Hebrews 13.20. Suddenly, a halo appeared to surround her face and head, and Osman began speaking in tongues. Parham and the other students later reported that Osman spoke in Chinese. In recalling that night, Osman herself asserted that the Holy Spirit fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues, glorifying God. I talked several languages and it was clearly manifest when the new dialect was spoken. The sudden burst of alleged xenoglossia, and that's the word for actual languages, okay, was only the beginning of an extraordinary paroxysm of faith and the supernatural at Stone's Folly. Parham reported that following the initial incident, Osman could only speak in Chinese for three days. When she tried to write, all that came out were Chinese characters, Chinese writing, and this was disputed by a local newspaper, which contended that Osman's writings were not symbols at all, but rather crude, indecipherable scrawl. I've seen actually... The writing, they have it, they've had it looked at by professionals. It's nothing. There's no, it's not Chinese at all. Nonetheless, over the course of the next few days, at least a dozen other students at Bethel Bible College began speaking in tongues as if to overpower any doubters. Parham claimed that his students were speaking in many languages, including Japanese, Hungarian, Syrian, and Hindi. At one point, Parham recounted the paranormal story of returning to Stone's Folly and finding a room on the second floor filled with white lights in which 12 ministers were simultaneously speaking in tongues as cloven tongues of fire were over their heads, and it blurred lines between fact and fabrication. Notwithstanding, Osman's New Year's Day outburst seemed just the beginning, merely the struck match for a much greater fire baptism of the Holy Ghost that swept through Parham's congregation. But historically, we know that this event did little to save this fledgling college there in Topeka, Kansas. It closed down later that year after going bankrupt. And the whole glossolalia event died as well as um, for a period of a few years after that event that took place. However, continuing... Five years later, in 1906, a scarred, one-eyed black preacher named William J. Seymour, also known as one of God's generals, would hold his first services at 214 Bonnie Brae Street in Los Angeles. On April 9th of that year, after weeks of praying to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, parishioner Edward S. Lee spoke in tongues, and Seymour was ecstatic. After all, He was one of Parham's original students at Bethel Bible College. He had been committed to this new form of baptism, the physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit for years now. A few days after the first incident of tongues, Seymour moved the congregation to an old building on 312 Azusa Street. You know this to be the Azusa Street revivals. In the years that followed, thousands of people would report speaking in tongues at the Azusa Street Revival. So we begin to see this cultural thing that caught on. The second wave was started through a man named Dennis Bennett in the 1960s. Dennis was the rector of St. Mark's Episcopal or Anglican Church. Within 10 years of this, speaking in ecstatic tongues had spread to many of the major Protestant churches. By 1990, it had reached 55 million Christians, including Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Roman Catholics, and many others. The third wave of glossolalia was through the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement, which started in Pittsburgh in 1967 by students and faculty of Duquesne University. And then by 1993, it had influenced the lives of over 100 million Roman Catholics all over the world. The fourth wave was started by evangelicals in 1987 at Fuller Theological Seminary. Isn't it interesting that these things start on the campuses of colleges and seminaries? Specifically by a a man named John Wimber, and as a result, by 1990, 33 million professing Christians had joined that particular movement. Uh, A renowned linguist who had extensively studied Christian tongues in charismatic circles described it as, quote, "...a meaningless but phonetically structured human utterance believed by the speaker." to be a real language, but bearing no systematic resemblance to any natural language, living or dead. So folks, in 120 years, the last 120 years, a variant of Christian theology has deviated uh, from historic Christian orthodoxy and it has spread worldwide. These ecstatic tongues are the least of their issues theologically when these, these... Awakenings or these revivals began to take place in America, and much of the theology that's seeping into our churches, and I'm talking mainstream churches today, comes out of years after these revivals, such as the Brownsville revival and the things that took on there. And they attribute these things this is important they attribute these things to the Holy Spirit, God. Do you understand? That's a serious thing. That's a serious charge. In many ways, they bear a striking and chilling resemblance to the same kinds of manifestations we see taking place in pagan practices in what's known as kundalini yoga. If you've ever heard of that, what they call a kundalini awakening, they say every human in their energy has a serpent coiled up in their belly, in their core. And the kundalini yoga releases, causes that serpent to spring forward and they're energized. They have this new awakening. And when this happens, these involuntary manifestations occur and they refer to them as Kriya. K-R-I-Y-A. And they come in the form of involuntary body jerks, uncontrollable laughter, and ecstatic tongues and various other types of manifestations. And even those within their the Charismatic ranks are greatly concerned, many in the charismatic ranks are greatly concerned with the direction the, the Pentecostal and charismatic movement has taken in the last uh, 35 to 40 years, and they have been outspoken about it. You'll see some of it You'll at the end of the next video, and it'll be the final video for the day. At the end of the next video, you'll hear a man talking about these manifestations and how they compare with the Kundalini, all right? And this guy is a, is a Pentecostal. He's a charismatic, and he's been very outspoken about the dangers of this type of spirit that's finding its way in the church. Um, one, I would say that many of those... Um, well, if we look in the past, and we see these gospel deviations in the past, and we see the first reformation... And we see why that took place. I believe that we are um, in desperate need today of a new reformation in the church, one that will take us back to what I called proto orthodoxy, which is what Jesus and the apostles taught. What does the Bible actually say? It's found only in God's word. And again, this is not to attack anyone, this is a plea, a plea to simply read what the Bible says, that's all I'm asking. Just read what the Bible says and let God lay out the standard for His people instead of going outside of what the standard of Scripture is and allowing anything and everything to take place. And I think you'll understand that, you know we, we think that a small deviation from Scripture is okay, that just a little speculation is no big deal, right? But if you think about a deviation, just one degree of deviation today, one degree off of staying upon that scriptural standard, where are we 30 years from now? We're way off, aren't we? Way out in left field. All right, so I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this next clip and we'll just play it through to the end and I got a few closing remarks just at the end. (laughs)
1: The Lord
2: touched me, I know that, and I expected him to, and he did. I wasn't disappointed.
0: As far as this, I don't know why I do that. Um, One of the most startling manifestations of the Toronto Blessing has become known as Holy Laughter. Members of Pastor Arnott's ministry team pray with visitors to the vineyard, who then, for no apparent reason, burst into fits of uncontrollable laughter.
1: capacity. But last night when when chastity um saying, you know, come running to the mercy.
0: And Lord, if it blows our little minds, let them be
2: blown. (laughs) Father, we want all of what you have, all of what you have. We thank you. Hallelujah.
1: Hallelujah. Hallelujah.
2: He had a, God told me to look at him, and I looked at him, and he had a tie on, and on, I don't know if he's here tonight, but he'll know, on the tie had a wolf howling at the moon, and the Lord said to me, will you howl for me? I said, don't ask me to do that, Lord. He said, if I ask you, will you do it? He said, "If I can't ask you to do something in your own house, how are you going to do it out there?" So. Ow!
1: Ow! Ow! <sighs> I think
2: I'm going to wreck because. You know what they, they say when you, you put two two users together? I and mean, you see, when Winnie gets up here, and then you expect me to get up and say coherent words later, afterwards. Oh, Jesus. Oh, dear Jesus. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Yes, Lord. I've learned a, a quick prayer. I'll teach it to all you really quickly. Okie dokie, Lord. Okie dokie. Mm. Lord, I love your heavy, drunken glory. Uh, Lord, I love it. Lord, thank you, Father, for more of the heavy, weighty, drunken glory in this house today.
0: Oh,
1: sh- oh the Lord is so good. Um.
2: Sh- just when the awakening broke out we were made to come here you were made to come here? well not on the Wednesday we all came because it was our Sabbath and we were all excited so we came to see what was going on And I've never seen anything like this before or even heard about it and I didn't know that the Lord could work like this Um, so you never did this kind of thing before? no. had you ever seen it before? Mm, no. you've never (laughs) seen this kind of manifestation of the Holy Spirit that you're now experiencing? Mm, yeah No. No, you never had? No. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then... Because you haven't stopped shaking since you've been on the platform. Before the platform.
1: She was sitting over there shaking for the last two hours. Yeah.
2: So this is all... Like the last two months, this is brand new to you, what the Lord is doing. Yeah, I grew up in a Methodist church. And... uh, So did I, by the way. I grew up in a Methodist church. So did I. Now this all began with Rodney Howard Brown imparting a new anointing into a bunch of leaders and they spread it around the world. In fact, it spread like wildfire. How do we know that Rodney Howard Brown had a pure anointing? How do we know it wasn't a kundalini spirit from the beginning? Because it seems absolutely identical to it. Now, one of the very clearest signs of a Kundalini awakening has always been these Kriyas. You see this woman involved in the New Age movement, she's walking along exhibiting these Kriyas happening, involuntary uh, jerking motions. And the staggering thing about it is that we are seeing again and again and again these exact same type of Kriyas right through the Toronto movement. This has always been one of the clearest signs of Kundalini that we know of.
0: So this sort of thing is happening all over, right now, all over churches in America and around the world. So I know it's, you watch it and part of you wants to laugh, but another part of you hopefully, it is, is like me, you're, you're terribly concerned for the state of the body of Christ and what's going on in the body of Christ, but more so that they are attributing it to the Holy Spirit. And you heard the one guy said, Lord, we want all of what you have. And I understand that prayer. I've prayed that prayer. Lord, I want all of you. I don't want to miss out on anything. But I got to tell you, you know that, that saying we hear over and over and over, don't put God in a box. And like I said, God put Himself in a box. It's called the Word of God. He put Himself in for our sake. He defined Himself for us in exactly the way that we need to know Him and understand Him. And we won't fall into this kind of deception. All right? And you need to ask yourself a few things as we close. Is this what we've seen, how those who walk in the power of the Spirit of God are supposed to act. Is this what it looks like? Because if it it is, then we're all missing it, aren't we? If that's how we're supposed to be living and acting, then, then we're missing it. I don't believe it is. I don't believe God's Word teaches that at all. Howling like wolves, barking like dogs, uncontrollable fits involuntary muscle movements that they can't control? Is that, let, let me ask you this, is that what will draw a lost person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? If they come in an assembly and those types of things are going on? Absolutely not. This is where we find ourselves as the American church. And and again, most of this has happened in the last 40 years. But, the newness of it, as I said, began in 1901, a very short time ago. And I would consider this to be hyper-charismatic. We see this in the Word of Faith theology. You saw the beginning clip of, of uh, it was Kenneth Copeland and Rodney Howard Brown talking back and forth in the in the tongues, as if they understood one another. Um, if Best case scenario, they're faking and they're fooling people. Worst case scenario, there's something demonic. I think either way, there's something demonic going on, but we're hoping that it's, I'm hoping that in fact it's not some form of actual possession or oppression in some way. But folks, as the body of Christ, we have to be faithful to God's word. This is why we have to be faithful to the scriptures. It is the standard for Christ's true church. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. We don't need to go outside of God's Word. When Jesus prayed right before He was crucified, He prayed this prayer for you and I. He says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. If we want to be sanctified, we allow the Word of God to wash us and sanctify us. It's truth that does that job, not some outside force that comes on us. Matter of fact, that is a a perilous and dangerous thing for a believer to do is open themselves up to outside forces that are claiming to be the Holy Spirit. Unapologetically though, I will tell you guys that I, I will be faithful to God's Word and His divine revelation as the leader or the pastor of a church unapologetically that is my standard and that is where i will stand and i'm going to ask you guys to do the same because i believe think about it if this is where we are today where will the church be the mainstream church where will it be 40 years from now it kind of makes you wonder about genuine faith and the nature of true believers and you and you think of that question the passage of scripture Will there be any faith in the earth when the Lord returns? When He returns, will He find faith in the earth? Genuine, true faith. Because the Bible says it'll be as in the days of Noah. And when I read Scripture about the days of Noah, what I see is that they were unredeemable. They have become so wicked that the Lord chose one family out of the millions of humans that lived, and He put them on an ark, and that's how He saved them. So the question is, folks, will you be faithful to God's word? Will you stand with me and be faithful to God's word? My prayer is that you will. Let's pray.